1: Hello, welcome to
2: another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Today we're going to be talking about one of our favourite things, which is food. Yay! We have Kate Owen with us, who's a PhD student at UCL and she specialises in early modern manuscript recipe books, which is just going to be
3: fascinating.
2: How do you end up, hello Kate, by the way, but how do you end up down this rabbit hole?
3: Uh, So I was introduced to recipe books through my master's course actually so i did a course at king's college london called early modern english literature text and transmission which was super focused on the materiality of text and how the way they're made or how how they are physically impacts how they're used so it was really perfect for me because i'm one of those people that just can't pick one thing to be interested in yep (laughs) (laughs) that's me (laughs) so um i saw them at a guest at welcome collection um and it's like the rest is literally history like I've just been absorbed into them since
2: brilliant yeah I I want all the rabbit holes as well Alina just likes five years in one area of Europe in World War Two, so she's fine she doesn't do the rabbit holes but no that's brilliant oh so I just Talk to us about your sources before we get started. I know, like we've got list of questions. I'm like, wow. How many of them survive, and what's early modern by definition?
3: Um, quite a lot of them survive more than you would think survive, but that has to do with kind of who made them and what they were used for, which we can get onto later. Um, I tend to look at recipe books that are kind of 16th 17th century because that's when kind of conventions on how you write your recipe book and what you use it for are kind of well established but they have a long history kind of from the medieval book of secrets kind of all that books full of different knowledges and recipes to do things and kind of I look at more of the 17th century domestic household recipe
2: books. One more diversion before we start the actual list of questions what's the oldest recipe you've seen?
3: In I've I've handled medieval recipe books, mm. so i could probably say them. But a lot of recipe books, even in kind of the later ones, have earlier sources. So even though they're not written down in like classical times, there are sometimes recipes that have been interpreted for early modern audiences that have a long history.
1: Can I diverge on one question now? I think we, we you started a bowl
2: rolling, Alex. This is your. Are you th- going to mention cake because it's you? No. Oh, okay. No. Huh.
1: Actually,
3: I'm going to say, have you tried any
1: of them? Yeah. That's the first
2: thing you've got to do, right?
3: It actually is. And I've, well, the first thing I ever made was a posset, which was an absolute big mistake because um, they are kind of drinks that are made from like hot alcohol, like wine or ale with curdled milk in. I know. I know. And they have. They also. They were purported to have kind of like medicinal purposes, depending on what you put in them. But also, they're quite good for like if you're sick and you can't eat anything. They're quite fortifying because you can put cream and eggs and, yeah. So, but what I do now is I tend to stick to the more, the biscuits and the cakes and the things that I could actually eat.
2: (laughs) What's the rankest recipe you've ever seen? I think that
3: might be (laughs) it. Yeah. the rankist there's lots of in there's lots of spices that you wouldn't put together that i see quite a lot that we is that
2: because it's like that's the this is days before refrigeration isn't it so it's more about it's as much about preservation as it is about taste
3: um that was thought for like a really long time but they they think it was actually just their tastes um for example like because spices also had a bit of reputation to them if you could get some of the rarer ones um, and early medieval early modern food was just full of these spice combinations that you just wouldn't put together and it wasn't until kind of the French were like we should go back to using food um, as natural as possible and just with their natural flavors so when people say English cooking is bad I kind of think it's the French's fault well. and then they have all their Michelin stars Yeah. <laughs> what's <laughs> then- the worst
2: combination you've seen
3: So just things that I think the delineation between like what we'd use for a dessert and what we'd use for um, a main. So like you'll have, um, you know, cinnamon and sweet things within recipes that have meat, which I have not made. And I don't think I will be. Um, But in terms of gross ingredients, especially medieval recipes, you have a lot of things like lampreys and eels and things that I just would not eat.
0: (laughs) When you're yeah.
3: saying about combining certain spices, all that was flashing
1: through my mind was combining cinnamon and, for example, parsley. And I'm thinking that's probably just the most grossest thing you could possibly ever do. Yeah, I agree.
2: <laughs> maybe not the very grossest of all the things in the whole world, but it does sound pretty gross. But with
1: the spices, that's, that's the kind of thing I'm going for the kind of gross spice combinations. What could you put together?
2: Like maybe hot paprika and. Oh, I'd, God, just anything think, with cori- fresh coriander would make me gag. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah, I'm one of those people with highly attuned taste buds that realise that it's technically poisonous. I like coriander, within within reason, obviously. That's because you have amateur taste buds. Do you know what, that's what it is. That's why people are repulsed by it, because if you ate enough of it in, like, fistfuls, um, it is poisonous. So that's my highly attuned taste buds rejecting the rankness of coriander
3: you've evolved
2: I'm, I'm more highly evolved than you alina is what i'm saying
3: Does it tastes like soap to you yes yeah i think that it's a genetic thing isn't it i've read and yeah, yeah genetically superior not going to get poisoned by having a massive salad
2: yeah. yeah whereas alina is likely to come home from the pub one day and eat so much coriander that she dies
3: see for me it's just, <laughs> i can't stand sage i think
1: it's absolutely vile i would not put it into any of my cooking um coriander-
2: what about stuffing
1: No, I won't have it. I make my own stuffing. Um, I do leek and apple stuffing
2: instead. Weirdo. Should we actually get on with the questions? Yeah. (laughs) Instead of just bombarding Kate with randomness. (laughs) What are manuscript recipe books?
3: (laughs) So I think (laughs) distilled right down to define them, it's probably notebooks with handwritten recipes within (laughs) them. Um, But because they are manuscripts and they've been produced by the people that are going to use them or at least initially the people that are going to use them they are so diverse in content because they reflect that person's needs so I've dealt with ones that are more professional so there might be a doctor's recipe book which is purely medicinal and just all the stuff he'd need to do his job but I tend to deal with household recipe books like domestic ones that kind of reflect the needs of the families and and the households that use them
1: so who actually owned, I mean, this is such a silly question, but who actually owned these recipe books?
3: Um, so it's not. Um, I think people think, oh, recipe books, we all have recipe books, so they just must have been used by everybody. And I, w- when I went into recipe books, I think I was naive, and I was like, I'm going to learn all about just the ordinary person and their, their cooking and their medical knowledge. But really, they are quite a middle upper gentry class endeavor Um, and that's for a few reasons so you have to have you know the knowledge of how to read and write to write them down Um, you need the resources so paper ink Um, if you're going to use them if you're going to use the recipes you need ingredients and some people got really into things like distilling and making things that lasted a long time so you need the storage and it also became like quite a a good pursuit to have if you were kind of kind of the gentry classes so um it was quite a good thing to do to get a reputation for having you know I'm good at recipes I'm good at um, medicine I'm good at cooking um so it became quite a, a good gentleman pursuit to have
2: that's really good um so yeah I guess working class people wouldn't have had recipe books would they all be in their head
3: um, yeah, I think it's a really good point as well. I think some people make the mistake that if you read one of these books, you you know everything that's happening in the household, but there were different ways of getting knowledge. Um, and when you have recipe books, the recipes in there might not be the stuff that's every day, because, for example, I'm not going to write in a recipe book how I make a piece of toast, because it's just common knowledge. But they might have written down recipes on scraps or had their own kind of notebooks. But the way that the this genre in particular is, is they were often made to be shown to other people or to be passed down. So they want them to survive. And I think that could be the difference as well.
1: Right. Talking about layouts.
3: Yeah. I've got it
1: in my mind that it's just the simplistic here is recipe one, two, three, four, five. Am I right? Or am I completely off the mark?
3: No, they're much messier and just, mad which more mad than that <laughs> so there's I mean there's loads of different ways to set out a recipe book um I've seen you know you might have a notebook that actually was something else before it was a recipe book so it's just full of different stuff um you might have a really nice presentation copy where you've had you've basically put all your nicest recipes in one book and made sure your handwriting was really nice um and you might split it between Um, You might have the front of the book is medicinal recipes and you flip over the book and work from the back and then that side could be the culinary. Or you might have an index and just everything is just assorted inside of, I've just written down recipes as I've found them and as I've wanted to write them down. But quite often you do do get groupings. So you might have all your preserves in one section and then um, a particular ailment, you might have all the recipes to deal with that in, in another. But they are quite uh messy <laughs> so
2: is, you've mentioned um medicinal is that basically the two blocks you get because obviously this is sort of pre-chemist pre-drug obsessed so you those are the two blocks you have you have the medicinal stuff that's supposed to benefit you and then you have the sustenance that's supposed to feed you is it a very definite divide between those two or do you find other
3: things as well you find lots of other stuff so it might just be that this the book contains everything you might need in your household so ink is a really common recipe um if you have lots of land you might have veterinary uh recipes or horticulture recipes um but even in the distinction between food and medicine um doesn't always work at the time because at this time people still ate to what they thought their um constitution was in terms of the the four humors so Mm. actually if you have an ailment you might eat to cure it. So the, 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 the delineation between food and medicine also doesn't always exist, but you still get recipes that are clearly for, you know, you're having people around and you want to do something really cool. So,
1: so when we think of recipes, like for example, my, um, my grandfather's passed down recipes that have been in the family or that he's created um, down and down and down, but where do other people, where do these people get their recipes from?
3: They could definitely get them from family as well. Um, And especially as um, these recipe books, if they were passed down, then the recipient of that book can look back and and see what previous people have done. But you could get recipes yourself from printed books or printed media. So if you have um, a cookbook, you might just pick a recipe from it that you want to try and you write it in your recipe book. Or um, when these recipe books kind of get to further in their lifespan you could have cutouts from newspapers um glued in but also you could exchange recipes with other people and that's what I find really interesting because you could use them as a way to social network so you could say um someone might ask for a recipe or say oh I need to make this and you're like well actually I have a really good recipe for that and you can give it to them and kind of use it for what clout as the people say (laughs) yeah (laughs)
2: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hold up. to ask as well do you find evidence
2: of like crazes for certain periods
3: yeah definitely so especially with ones that have when we we're talking about really spiced recipes um that you can definitely see in kind of older sections you'll see lots of stuff that uses lots of different spices um and then as you go on you'll kind of have like the simpler foods and um, so you can definitely track how people were consuming stuff both in terms of like medical like consumption of all the buying practices of different medicines but also for food and there's been some really good research recently I was listening to a, a conference where someone was saying you can kind of track um kind of the use of things like sugar which is so tied to you know the creation of the slave trade and colonialism and you can track that even within these personal recipe books that just you know the middling and upper classes might have had so they actually are really interesting resources for so many different things
1: how did these recipes um sorry i'm losing my language today how did these recipe books document day-to-day life
3: uh, they definitely did in some ways but it's, as, as i said before um sometimes the absences that are in recipe books are really important Um for example in recipes themselves there's quite a lot of assumed knowledge so we were talking about um making recipes. Well sometimes when I make them as, as a 21st century person I have no idea, even though the recipes in front of me what of what I'm doing. Um because there's an element of everyday life that you don't need to put in a recipe book. So for example when I like look at I don't know pick a chef, Nigella, she's having a moment. So she has a recipe and it says, you know, whisk two eggs. I know not to throw two eggs in their shells in a bowl and smash them all with a whisk. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so there's stuff like Everyday cooking and everyday life that aren't on recipe books in recipe books because they didn't need to be. Um, so, for example, when I was talking about making a posset, the first time I looked for a recipe, the recipe literally just said, make the posset and eat it. And I was like, thanks, that's so helpful to me. Um, but in other ways, they document life in terms of you can find accounts in them, um, you can find lists, you can find um, inventories of clothes or objects, um, but they can also document kind of how these recipes were used because people would annotate them. Um, So you can see if there's a group of recipes that's to do with a particular ailment and people have written, oh well this helped Johnny with his fits, I think is an annotation I've seen before. You can see how it's documenting kind of like medical records within the family as well um and people also use them in the same way that family printed bibles were used to like document births or deaths or life events so in that way they can be you know quite special and personal texts and um, that can get quite emotional sometimes when you have a list of children that were born and then you see like a lot of them didn't live or they didn't live very long so
2: yeah i was going to ask you about the annotations like to so <clears throat> what are some of the stuff you found
3: um so I found, so there's lots of different reasons to annotate a recipe, which might be that you've written it down and you haven't tried it yet. So then you annotate it with kind of your notes on whether or not it was a good recipe. So sometimes you have a tick or a cross or the words, you know, probatum S, like I've trialed this recipe and for recipes that are good. And then you might have biographical notes where you say, you know, this helped my sister in labor Or this helped my sister when she was with child. So you start getting not only the knowledge from the recipe itself, but the learned knowledge that people have got through using them, which is really interesting. And you also, when we're talking about that kind of social networking through recipe exchange, one of the funniest ones I've seen is there's a, I think there was a recipe, I think it might have been for a pie. Um, where somebody got it from someone, written their name, because obviously you could then document, oh, I got a recipe from this person. So, you know, I have cool friends. I have, you know, friends that I want to be associated with. And someone had just written, crossed it out and just been, this is really bad. Um, (laughs) Which I always think there must be a story.
1: (laughs) I do that. Can I tell you, I've got recipe books that I've used a recipe for. And I was like, oh, that shit, just crossed it out. Do not use under any circumstances
3: exactly yeah and then as i do that as well and then if you pass that on um the next person who uses it knows not to waste their time with it um but i wonder if that person got any feedback for how bad their pie recipe was
2: or if there was nothing wrong with the pie at all and they just had a row about something else so it was like damn you curse you and your recipe
3: <laughs> yeah or if there was nothing wrong with the recipe but the person making it made a mistake that's something i think about a lot yeah.
2: what's <laughs> the weirdest annotation you've seen
3: the weirdest there's there's been a an annotation of a recipe or just an annotation in a in a recipe book just
2: in a book in
3: um, the it, there's a really funny <laughs> um annotation where so often recipe books have claims of ownership in them so they'll be like "Kate Owen, her book and the year and maybe like a nice bible quote or some nice decoration but often people would just write as they got recipe books and they exchange hands they'd write their name in it so they could document who's had it and there's a recipe book that's known as the Johnson Family Recipe Book that was owned initially by someone called Elizabeth Phillips. And um, underneath, there's, a, there's a, a note that says, you know, this was given to me by my mother. And it means stepmother because this second owner married Maurice Johnson, who doesn't seem to be very happy that she got the book and not him. So underneath it says, you know, something like, this is, um, I claim this book is my right maurice johnson of spaulding Lincolnshire. (laughs) and obviously i don't know when though you know what's the timeline of those things being written you know between the first or the second even the second and the third annotation there could be a while between it but i like to think there was some kind of like argument
2: (laughs) maybe it got it went down in like a divorce or a separation thing about who got to keep the recipe book
3: yeah and that's his
2: moment of glory
3: yeah I, i i don't i don't know the specifics of it but it just obviously it says a lot because he's obviously claiming that as his property and there's all sorts of stuff to do with women's ownership of property and women's ownership of books and how many how many women's libraries got absorbed into their husbands but also he obviously thought well this is this is a family text and it ended up being you know used into the 19th century so he took it but he did make good use of it and he also was really um, he was involved in the founding of the Spaulding Society, which was like a, a gentleman society with intellectual interests, which makes me think how many recipe books did you, men claim or men or just family members use that had information from the kind of domestic women's knowledge that ended up in kind of like semi-professional or professional male spaces. I hmm. think about that probably more than I should. <laughs> <laughs>
2: another rabbit hole from a rabbit hole
3: yeah <laughs>
1: random question
2: it's
3: kind of on topic maybe a little bit
1: off topic but for example if you had i don't know seven girls born into a family and you have this one recipe book who do you who do they end up giving it to was the eldest is it the youngest the one in the middle the one that cooks the best do, could, can you answer that is that even possible um
3: i can I can hazard some guesses. I mean, one would be like sometimes they were given as wedding gifts, so it might you might give a recipe book if you only have one and you have a daughter that manages to like secure a husband, you might give it to her um but we know that people had relationships with recipe books that they ended up with after somebody's died before that person died so there's a recipe book um I think elizabeth freak's recipe book um she had two she had one. no Joanna St. John's anyway somebody had a recipe book and she died and when she died she she had a recipe book that was just medicine and a recipe book that was just culinary and she split it up so she split up her recipe archive and then there was another family where she had a lot of children I can't remember the name of the woman but she in her will expressed that the recipe book should be accessible to all of her children because she thought it was very important that every single one of them had access to it. And they could have done that by passing it around, but they also could have just lent it to each other and started their own recipe books with the recipes from the original.
2: I really want to know, how does their usage change over time? Do you see that at all, or is it very much sort of a staple of the household?
3: Yeah, they well, because they have such long lives, they tend to have lots of different uses, so um a good example of this is a recipe book at welcome collection um that was owned by someone called Martha Hodges and it was used as like a recipe book but it's also got other stuff in it like religious writings and just um excerpts from different print sources but on the front page there's just this mess of lots of different uses over time so there's a really lovely note that says um this was our grandmother Martha Hodges book. And then it has a little genealogy to say how she she was related or how they were related to her. And then it says her hand, um, she has written her her signature in her own hand or her name is in her own handwriting at the back of the book. And her brother was a doctor who had a book about recipes. And that itself shows like a massive respect for the text. So this was your great grandmother who um, is now gone. She obviously knew her stuff because her brother was a doctor himself and go go to the back of the book and go and look at her hand and that to me says there was something special about going and visiting the hand the handwriting of their great grandmother in the same way that you know people get tattoos of handwriting of loved ones that's passed on mm-hmm. but on the same page there's just loads of marks where someone's just tested their pen so I'm yeah. like, <laughs> it's kind of gone down a bit and there's also um people have copied writing that's on that Page in a shakier hand. So, also now it's being used as a place to practice your handwriting. So, I guess as time goes on, um, the, the change in the relationship people have with it also changes and they become more valued or less valued depending on who owns them.
1: There are special collections um, of these recipe books, aren't there?
3: Yeah. So, there's a lot of them. So, I deal with uh, or have dealt with in my research. Welcome Collection, um, the Royal College of Physicians London. Um, but there's recipe books in special collections everywhere. Like Folger has quite a good amount, um, Penn University, University of Pennsylvania does. So they're all over the place. Um, and using special collections is just so important when dealing with these texts, at least for me. Um, because there is something about holding them and i think we don't credit our hands enough when we're doing research as as being knowledgeable if that makes sense so we just tend to think or we look at things but handling these texts you you kind of get a sense of what they're like to hold if that you know are they portable are they texts that actually might have had to stay in one place how have they been used if you open up the pages do the pages themselves want to turn to a particular spot what does that say about how they've used if there's writing on top of writing um you know, it's easier at least for me to look at that in person. Um, that being said, I am super happy, especially now <laughs> during the pandemic, that a lot of places have really good digital um surrogates for recipe books. So welcome and folger being one of them. Um and also I'm going on about how good special collections are, but you know, that is an access issue, isn't it? Like, it's quite privileged to be... That's why I pay the nose through the nose for London rent, is to be able to touch this old stuff, you know? <laughs> it's not for, like, the transport system. So I do recognise that you don't really have to always see them to produce good research, but for what I do, it's really important.
2: What's your favourite recipe book that you found?
3: Oh, I think it is the Martha Hodges one, the one with all the writing on it, um, because it's just... This text it just shows how many different uses it had, how um, these recipe books might actually be useful for lots of different reasons, a place of contemplation for you know people that you don't know anymore that a name like Martha Hodges you might have never met her but you have her text and um, they also that text also has lots of doodles in it that I just love like there's a house like a really topsy-turvy big long house um there's some kind of animal like I don't know whether it's meant to be a stout or an otter or a dog but it just shows to me like how life actually has kind of took place on these recipe books as much as been documented by it and especially the doodles not to like be mean at the art level of whoever drew them but they do look sometimes look quite Mm. childish I mean I'm not I'm not an artist so it could have been an adult but I also like to create this fiction in my head that at one point someone was trying to do some work and their kid was being really annoying so instead of like shoving them a tablet they just shoved them this manuscript
2: yeah
3: (laughs) go ahead like just leave me alone
1: Kate, thank you so much for joining us and giving us this incredible insight into some of these really old recipe books. They're just so interesting and they can tell you so much about a person's life just by looking through the recipes and the annotations and, and things like that. So thank you so much
3: thank you so much for having me it's been so much fun
2: (laughs) tell me as well that you plan to do a compilation recipe book when you're done with your PhD
3: Um, I actually have started my own manuscript recipe book that details all the stuff I'm making and all my experience doing it so maybe one day that'll happen
2: (laughs) brilliant absolutely you have to come back and tell us all about it when it does join us tomorrow morning for poll position and then in the afternoon we'll be talking to Ted Houghton all about the Balkan Wars. Now if you've ever had to write that essay about the causes of the First World War you will have mentioned the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913 but if you're like me you have no idea what happened in them. This is why we invited Ted along and he gives us a really good introduction so don't miss that. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on youtube we are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms so you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe